Hallelujah. We praise you, O Lord, because your name is great and greatly to be praised. You have demonstrated your worth and your works and your attributes, your great renown through all of recorded history. We see it in our own lives when you ransomed us from hell that we deserved, Lord, and redeemed us and set us apart, turned our hearts of flesh into our hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, Lord, pulled our feet from the miry clay of our depravity and set them on our rock, Jesus Christ. You are the God most high and greatly to be praised through the course of the history of all your people as you proclaimed your glories and your works and wonders in the universe, in the wilderness, Lord, and throughout all the earth and beyond, even in this universe, Lord, from the moment your people were delivered from slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, all through the scriptures to the end which is prophesied when all nations will be delivered into your hand and you will rule and reign as King of kings and Lord of lords fully and finally in the redeemed earth. We see your great name championed through all of history. As we turn to one of those moments in Scripture where your name is made great, Lord, and announced to us through the record of your dealings with your people, I pray that you would stir within us conviction and faith that we might live, Lord, in light of the truth that you are the Alpha and the Omega, the all-powerful one who holds eternity in the palm of your hand. Awaken our hearts to the truth of the gospel as we explore your scriptures this day and equip us, Lord, to boldly proclaim these truths beyond this place. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise God. What a great privilege we have and an opportunity to share in the deep knowledge of the Scriptures today, and it is my prayer that the Holy Spirit would reveal the glories of His Word from Psalm 78 as we consider several verses from this song. Would you turn with me to Psalm 78, verses 17 through 31? This is the second section of this song that we are considering today. This, of course, is a masculine of Asaph which has begun by introducing us to this concept of telling the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might. The emphasis, the instruction, the mandate, the commandment is that the current generation would tell the next generation, even the children yet unborn, to arise and tell them the glorious deeds of God that they might set their hope in God and not forget His works, but keep His commandments that they may not be a stubborn and rebellious generation like their fathers. And he goes on in our section today to detail by way of example when this instruction is not followed, the kind of rebellion that fill, that uh, floods in to that void of faithfulness in the human heart, thus underscoring the importance of taking seriously the instructions of Scripture. The title of this morning's message is Graves of Lust. Graves of Lust. This is actually a translation of a Hebrew term, Kibroth Hatava. Kibroth Hatava. And it was the name of a place that is featured in our text today, where the people were given over to their lusts, to their cravings, and how the Word of God, and in the course of this event, demonstrates that the wages of sin is death. Thus, graves of lust were there dug at Kibroth Hatava. The aim of this morning's message is to proclaim truths, inspiring the fear of the Lord and yielding the fruit of faithfulness. 
I submit to you that the intent of Psalm 78 in part is to do these two things. To inspire the fear of the Lord in the reader. And secondly, or the singer, and secondly, to yield the fruit of faithfulness. That we might learn from these failings to cling closer to the Lord and out of fear of Him, to walk in a manner, as the book of Ephesians says, worthy of our call as Christians. So with your Bibles open to Psalm 78, verses 17 through 31, out of reverence and fear, would you stand with me for the reading of God's holy word today? Here we have the infallible word of Christ from the Old Testament proclaimed to us in verse 17 of Psalm 78. Yet they sinned still more against Him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the uh, the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can He also give bread and provide meat for His people? Therefore, when the Lord heard, He was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel. Because they did not believe in God and did not trust His saving power. Verse 23. Yet He commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. And He rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by His power He let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sands of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings, and they ate and were filled, for He gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of the Lord rose against them, and He killed the strongest of them, and laid low the young men of Israel. This is the word of God. You may be seated. The tone of the greater portion of Psalm 78's historical record is sobering indeed. These are serious situations that are brought to our memory as we read this account. This demonstrates this passage of Scripture and this event to which our author Asaph refers It demonstrates the fearful consequences of sinful rebellion against the Lord and against His anointed. Indeed, the people in the wilderness learned that the wages of sin were death. Though these sections of the Psalms are more somber and less perhaps superficially comforting than what we may prefer in a worship song, they are nevertheless indispensable. They are necessary. They are spiritual life-sustaining medicines for the hearts of God's people who are so often susceptible to self-centered complacency. We tend to get complacent in our walk with God when we focus on ourselves and our cravings. The craving of the wandering Israelites for the meat that they had or enjoyed in Egypt, getting sick and tired of God's continual provision of manna, which is referred to as the bread of angels, caused them to have a bad attitude and to begin to care only about their cravings more, or to care more about their cravings than about the glory of God, honoring and worshiping Him, faithfulness to the covenant. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we explored this last week, reminds us of the spiritual utility of these references 
in all of the Old Testament Scripture. In chapter 10, verses 6 through 12 of 1 Corinthians, so we find quotes like this. Paul says, These things took place as examples for us that we may not desire evil as they did. You see, the record of the Old Testament Scripture in part is the inspired truth of God that we might fear the Lord and yield the fruit of righteousness, that we may not desire evil, live our life according to our lusts and cravings as they did. We may read the frequent rejections of God in the Old Testament who continued to miraculously sustain, having miraculously saved His people, and think, how ridiculous. How many of us have let that thought cross through our mind? If I had a cloud representing proof positive of God's presence dwelling with me that I could follow every single day, I would never have to ask the question, what is the will of God for me today? Follow the cloud, stupid. That is the will of God. Or at night, it would be so plain and obvious we might think, I never have to worry if I'm outside of where I need to be. What should I do with my life right now? You're right there, guided and lit, illuminated and watched over by a a pillar of fire that represents God's watch care and His provision over you. And more than this, His favor and presence with His people. Well, we might think, if I had such a thing, if I had such a guide, if I had such such an assurance, surely I wouldn't wander from the Lord. But this is not true. We, may I submit to you, have a clearer guide indeed than a cloud by day and a fire by night. And it comes in the scriptures we've read today. We just as easily ignore the greater, more clear, powerful direction of the Lord in His holy scriptures. We just as easily, in our self-centeredness, ignore the value of these words before us today as the Israelites of old ignored the wonders of God in their presence that they had in their own history and they had as an ever-present reality among them. So as we consider this, we see that we need to learn these same lessons. These actions seem especially ridiculous. In hindsight, we are tempted to assume that we would never be capable of such a thing. But Paul, again in 1 Corinthians 10, reminds us in verse 12, that such, a, such thinking is dangerous and it denies the very reason these failings are recorded for us. A second quote from Paul, Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. These accounts of Israel's covenant history are appreciated, therefore, for their hortatory, that is, warning uses, not to mention their foreshadowing of the messianic future, which we'll see by at least one example toward the close of this message. So that's what's going on in the text here, kind of an introduction as to its purpose. Now let me give you a heading as we consider these scriptures more specifically. The heading of today's message is, The Record of Israel's Rebellion Entails the Following. Number one, Revolt Against Authority. Number two, Reasoning Contest, a sort of uh, contest or competition of reasoning. Man's reasoning versus God, I wonder who wins. And then thirdly, reckoning in history. The record of Israel's rebellion entails a revolt against authority by the people of God, a reasoning contest where they argue with God, and finally a reckoning, consequences for their rebellion in their own history. A lot of alliteration in my uh, outline today. I'm particularly proud of all these R's. More R's or alliteration than a Baptist preacher. That's pretty awesome. 
So let's look at the, here a little more closely at the Scriptures beginning in verse 17, revolt against authority. Here, the Word of God says the following in these first two verses of our text today, yet they sinned still more against Him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the, fruit, the food they craved. So here we see there's a revolt against the authority of the Lord in their misplaced affections, in the lust of their heart, in their serving of self, the people began to reject the Lord. They sinned still more against Him. Who did they sin against? The word, the name for God that is chosen and specified in this context is the Most High. And this is intentional and on purpose. They rebelled against the Most High. This illustrates the foolishness of taking issue with an authority as sovereign, as preeminent, as powerful, such that there is nothing higher than Him. Do not rebel against the Most High. There are other authorities that can be questioned. In our day and age, there are many levels of authority in a highly developed, sophisticated society such as ours, and none of them are without question. All, except for one, that is the authority of God Himself, Christ's rule and reign, are to be held accountable to a higher authority still. Government cannot do whatever it wants with impunity and not answer for it. Government must follow the dictates, the framework, the limitations, the instructions of God's Word. Because God is the governor of governors, the king of kings. Parents are not free to order their house any way they wish, to be abusive to their children, to act out of turn with God's instructions. They must According to Psalm 78, if they are faithful to God's plan and purpose for them, instruct their children in the ways of the Lord. The authority of the parent is not without question. There is only one authority that is without question. That is the authority of the Most High. How often do we as people take for granted lesser authorities or assume that our authority is just fine the way that we are acting, yet we question God's authority? The one authority that is perfect, established, immovable, unassailable will never be challenged without consequence. May we repent before it's too late if we were to ever question the Most High. Let me by cross-reference give you one example to help illustrate this name of God and its importance. Turn with me to Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14, uh, some see this passage as a metaphor referring to Satan or evil generally. Any, I suppose, in principle, it could refer to any agency that it seeks to exalt itself above the power of God. But in context here, it refers to the rebellious, godless nation, society of Babylon. In Isaiah 14, verse 13, we read the following. You said in your heart, so these are words, the oracle of God coming in corrective judgment against one who would challenge the Most High. Again, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. Above the stars of God, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like who? The Most High. You are brought down to Sheol, the place of the dead, destruction, judgment, hell, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? No matter how powerful any authority may appear to be in this life, if they seek to ascend to heaven, 
Remember the Tower of Babel? If they seek to set themselves above the Lord, if they challenge the Most High, what always will happen, it is inevitable, and in every case, the judgment of God will come in His perfect time, and that false authority who challenged the Most High will be brought down to Sheol. This happened to the children of Israel in the wilderness. Those who so presumptuously challenged the Most High by unrepentantly rebelling against His authority, they made graves in their lust, graves of lust. Their craving, their self-centeredness, their insatiable self-desires led them straight to Sheol. Revolting against authority. When we rebel against God, when we question Him, we question the Most High. And because of this, there are dire consequences. Secondly, how did they question the Most High? How did they revolt? The second verse gives us this language. They tested God in their heart. What does it mean to test the Lord? Well, you might think of it as putting Him on trial. When you're sitting in a courtroom and you're being accused of a crime, who is the authority in that room or in that, those chambers? Is it not the judge or is it not the jury? You are on trial. You are being examined to see if you are guilty or innocent. And then the final proclamation of your state before this court is reserved for that authority, that judge who will rule in this case. So now with that in mind, you can see the problem of presuming to be the judge and jury and placing God on the witness stand. What are you saying? You're saying, I am a rule, I am an authority, I am a standard over the Most High. He must be accountable to me. I will scrutinize him. I will put him to the test. I don't think this is right, your dealings with us, God. You should give us a more diverse menu. We are sick of manna. You should know better than to give us this bread of angels over and over again. This is the foolishness of their attitude. The attitude of the people's rebellion is described this way. They tested God. In our passage, our worship passage today, Psalm 95.9 Again, it celebrated the foolishness and the folly and the judgment deserving this kind of action and attitude against the Lord. It is wrong, always wrong, without exception, to subject Him to scrutiny, trial, examination, or indictment, to presume to critically analyze using an independent and therefore ostensibly, or we assume a superior, quote-unquote, objective standard to assess the worth of something. Uh, Albert Moeller has a great phrase. He says, when we open the scriptures, we need to use a hermeneutic of submission, not suspicion. Remember that. When we look at the scriptures, we are not to be suspicious, we are to submit. When God speaks, His people surrender to that word. They recognize they are in the courtroom as the accused, and they must seek mercy from the judge. They do not assume, unless they're in heinous, that they stand over God as to judge Him to see if He is legitimate, if He meets the standard of our expectations. This is often the pitfall in our modern world. Why? Because we presume that we are our own authority. In this nation, our culture, generally, we have bought the lie of original sin. You can be as God. So you might go out and witness to your friend, and they might feign some interest, Oh, uh, let me hear about your idea and concept of God. I'm not sure if that really makes a lot of sense. Or how do you account for the following? Or 
uh, science says otherwise, or I'm not sure modern philosophy really corresponds with that primitive thinking of ancient Bronze Age goat herders. I'm going to have to give it some thought. And, you know, in the end, uh, I think I might take a few bits and pieces of the Bible, seems to be good moral advice, and add it to this vain thinking over there, this academic over here, this scientist making this foolish claim over there, and create a hodgepodge, this smorgasbord of self-made religion. This is the kind of attitude that is described here. It's testing God. Who are we to say to the Most High, I'm not sure if you're legitimate. Well, I'm going to test your words. I'm not really sure you're as wise as some have said you are. This is the kind of revolt against authority that will meet a swift and decisive judgment in consequences if repentance is not forthcoming. Who are we? We are broken, decrepit, lost, depraved sinners standing in the presence of sheer holiness. And if we look at Isaiah's account, we see a better attitude. We see the actual attitude that someone who realizes the truth of encountering a holy God ought to have. Woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips and beg for that atoning coal to touch us, to purify us heart, body, and soul. This is what we need. We need not test God. Now, the final word under revolting against uh, revolution against authority is this uh, idea of demanding their cravings. Instead of worshiping the Lord and sacrificing their preferences to Him as an act of worship, they began to consider their cravings as God and, and, and demand that God conform to their lusts. After all, verse 18, they tested God in their hearts by demanding the food that they craved. Turn with me to Numbers 11 and we can get the context of these words right from Moses' record. So the people are sick of manna. They're crying out for different kinds of food and they're craving meat and they act like crazy people and psychotic when God finally answers their prayer in a form of judgment more than blessing. We see this story picked up in Numbers 11.31. Then a wind from the Lord sprang up and it brought coil from the sea and let them fall beside the camp about a day's journey on this side and a day's journey on the other side around the camp. <laughs> this is crazy, listen. About two cubits above the ground. That's about three feet deep of birds. A day's journey that way, a day's journey that way. We're talking like the shallow end of a pool that you can barely see across, full of dead birds. And the people rose all that day and all that night and all the next day and gathered the quail. Quick, quick, before my neighbors get it all. And they're swimming in a sea of dead birds. Those who gathered least gathered ten homers. Guess how much that is? Any guesses? Guess how many gallons a homer is? Or 10 homers is. Kiddos, any guesses? How many gallons? 200? Huh? 300? Any other guesses? 400? Pretty close. 4,000? 480 gallons. Some of you kids were pretty close. These people gathered, those who gathered the least amount of coil in the sea of dead birds had 480 gallons of worth of birds in their stash. And they spread them out for themselves all around the camp. 
And while the meat was still between their teeth, before they even had a chance to swallow, before it was consumed, the anger of the Lord was kindled against the people, and the people struck down, and the Lord struck down the people with a very great plague. Therefore, the name of the place was Kibroth Hatava. Kibroth Hatava. This means, again, the title of this message, Graves of Lust. Because they were buried, because they buried the people who had the craving. Their craving led them to, to virtually eat themselves to death. When you combine God's judgment and their lusts. From Kibroth, Hatava, the people journeyed to Hezroth, they remained in Hezroth. So those that remained continued from that place, hopefully learning a lesson. These birds piled three feet deep on the ground, were hoarded by the people in gallons and gallons. People worshipped their insatiable, self-centered desires as God. They served them. They served themselves, indulging themselves without any regard to the Lord. They were guilty of worshipping things, their own belly, rather than the Lord who had saved them from the hand of the Egyptians, who had kept them in tyrannical slavery for 430 years. This is the danger of living according to our selfish desires. This is the danger of revolting against the Lord's authority. He may just turn you over. Be careful what you wish for. You've heard that phrase? In this case, it was literally true. Be careful what you wish for. In your sin, what you wish for is your own destruction. You cannot trust your desires. You can trust the Lord. Submit your desires to Him. Let the Word of God declare a revolution over your desires rather than the other way around. Hold your dreams, ambitions, loves, appreciations, desires accountable to Scripture. Don't try to shape God to fit your preferences. The second lesson or in the record of Israel's rebellion is this contest of reasoning that we see in the text. People arguing with God. The attitude of the people versus the infallible word. Verse 19, again in Psalm 78, they spoke against God saying, listen to this, this is our argument. Can God spread a table in the wilderness? What does that mean, spread a table? Well, a table is where you eat, you spread the table when you place all the food on it. Can God really provide us food in the wilderness out here in the desert? They say in verse 20, He struck the rock so that the water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can He give bread or provide meat for His people? Pausing there, do you notice what these people are saying? They're saying that even though God provided water from a rock, a spring, a waterfall exploded from a piece of granite or something like that, when Moses tapped it, uh, you know, hit it with his rod, all of a sudden water was flowing. But they refused to connect that miracle, that miraculous power of God and His faithfulness in the past to His trustworthiness in their future. Do you see? This was the problem. This is why in the beginning of the passage it says, teach your children His wonders. Take seriously. We talked about this last week. A spiritually literate people take seriously the wonders of the Lord. They take seriously the rebellion of man. They take seriously the mandate to teach those wonders of the Lord to their, the next generation. These people weren't even taking seriously the wonders of the Lord to trust God to provide for them tomorrow, when just weeks ago, presumably, they had drank out of a rock. 
This is the kind of faithless, faithlessness that was characterizing the people of God at this time. They did not consider his wonders as sufficient ground for their own assurance. Let me ask you a question. Let us consider this today. Do you trust God will take care of you because he took care of his people in the wilderness? Or is it tempting to think, my situation's different, I'm disconnected from that scenario, the circumstances don't necessarily apply? The Word of God has instructions for us today. God will take care of you tomorrow because He made water come out of a rock for His people. Because He brought the grain of heaven, the bread of angels, manna, from glory to earth for His children in the wilderness. These wonders are grounds for your assurance that God will provide for you today. He has done so chiefly through His Son, who at the end of this message we will see in His own words is the bread of life. The God who sent manna in the desert sends the bread of life in His Son to provide for you in every possible way. This is the message. Don't be like the ancient uh, Israelites who reasoned against the Lord saying, I don't think it really follows that if God provided for us yesterday, He will provide for us today. We have good reason to doubt. We have good reason to speculate. Not so. This skeptical attitude of these people's heart and attitude was wickedness against the Lord. And this was their case against God. Well, just because you provided for us before doesn't mean that we can count on you to do it now. Was that true? Would that case hold up in court? Absolutely not. Next, we see God's response to their reasoning. And this is in verse 21. Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. A fire was kindled against Jacob, and his anger rose against Israel. If crossing the Red Sea, being led by a fire and cloud, if water exploding from a rock and manna descending from heaven isn't enough to convince you that I will take care of you, my children, in this wilderness then you are obtuse, rebellious, and in danger of great judgment, repent. The anger of the Lord and His wrath was stirred against this people who refused to believe the word of the Lord. They refused to believe what God had spoken to them through these acts. He had revealed His nature and His character to them. How has God revealed Himself to us? He has spoken to us by His word. He has revealed His nature and character to us in much the same way. Listen and believe His word. The Lord was angered in verse 22 because they did not believe, because they did not trust His saving power. God's response is similar to that that we've studied of late through the prophet Nahum to the wicked city of Nineveh, who experienced God's works among them, staying His hand of judgment when they repented. But as Nineveh collapsed back in, to their selfish desires. They dug graves for themselves in their idolatry and lust once again. And although there was many hundreds of years before the Lord finally poured out the full weight of His wrath and anger against them, He surely did. And Nineveh is nothing but ruins today. And the nations that overran it would one day join them as well. Why? Because they did not kiss the sun. And the sun, per Psalm 2, eventually was angry in the way. His wrath was greatly kindled, 
And the only ones who will be blessed are those who trust in Him. All others, the Lord laughs against them in derision and they will be destroyed. And so God's people in this fearful scenario face this eventuality. God's response against them in this state of heart was wrath and anger. And so His plagues were poured out upon them. Because in their questioning the Lord in this way, they dismiss and mocked His central attributes. They mocked, they dismissed, they minimized the fact that God is glorious and worthy of praise. Not to be questioned, always to be trusted. They took aim at God's glory. They said, we don't think you're consistent. We can't trust your faithfulness. You might betray us tomorrow. How would we know that you'll be the same tomorrow, the, the way you were yesterday? This message was just as applicable to the New Testament audience in Hebrews 13, when our author wrote, he studied it recently, Christ Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The salvation that he offers those of us in the spiritual wilderness of our own sins is an ever-present reality, as powerful today as the day on Calvary, when blood flowed from His veins, purchasing for us our redemption. Our God is consistent and to be trusted, and He never uh, wavers or fails in His covenants. He is the I am, the forever self-contained, uh, always covenant-keeping King of kings, God and Lord of lords. Next we have, in verse 22, God's case against the people. We've heard the reasoning of the people against God. Now let's listen to the Lord. Because, God says, they did not believe in God and did not trust His saving power. So the reasoning of the Lord for bringing this punishment and this just wrath against these people is because they did not believe in Him and did not trust His saving power. These are two very important phrases. These days, there are many who do not trust God's saving power. We know from all the scriptures that these redemptive historical milestones were laying out a pattern of revelation that would one day be fulfilled in Christ. Those who received the bread of heaven in the wilderness would one day receive in faith the bread of heaven himself in Jesus Christ our Lord. Those who trusted the slain blood of the lamb on their doorpost a sufficient covering so the angel of death, the agent of reckoning would pass over, would one day trust, they were trusting in faith in the future Lamb of God, the one whom John the Baptist pointed to and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. That is to say, the one in whom the true blood spilled over the doorposts of your heart will be sufficient so that the ultimate angel of death, eternity itself, hinges upon salvation through this man. Do we trust His saving power? Are we tempted to look to other ways for hope, encouragement, for joy, for satisfaction, for peace? If we do, we run the risk of the same sins of the people of God then, not believing in Him or trusting His saving power. God has vested His saving power exclusively in Christ, Christ alone. There is no substitute, no material contingency plans, People say they buy insurance for peace of mind. Will it earn you peace with God? Is there something like health and or uh, hell insurance? Let uh, never mind health insurance. 
where if you died today, you could escape hell tomorrow, not outside of Jesus Christ. And that's the most important uh, contingency to prepare for. Is there salvation in self? Can we fix ourselves? Can we start with what we have and what we have to work with and fashion a noble life and future goals and ambitions? Can the welfare state save us? Can it protect us, the warfare state on the borders of our nation or within our schools? Is there good fortune to be had through the promises of the lottery or career ladders? Can ambitions and investments in Wall Street or getting super serious about our goals and plans, self-employment, any of these things? Is there hope to be found in these? If there's any merit to be found in any of these pursuits, it is secondary to our salvation. It is, ought to be, they ought to be pursued out of obedience to Jesus Christ, not as a substitute source of assurance or peace or joy or satisfaction. To the degree that anything competes with Him is the degree we must repent because we are trusting the saving power of something else, not believing in God. And so the Lord always wins this reasoning contest. This was the case he made against the people that justified his plague that he sent, just like it justified the earth swallowing the followers of Korah and the fire erupting from the soil, destroying the 250 chieftains that were bringing their grievances against the Lord's anointed. That justified the snakes, the vipers, with venomous sting, killed thousands again when they rebelled. And each time these happened, the case that the Lord brought against His people was perfect. It was just, and it justified His actions. And those who were saved were only the ones who looked to what the sacrificial system prefigured. One day that God would provide atonement, a sacrifice that would judge me in good standing with Him, that I might be in fellowship with the holy. Final point this morning, the record of Israel's rebellion entails reckoning in history. So the record of this showdown continues. The rest of our passage today records the events. Verse 23, Yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. And he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. This, these three verses are the contravening testimony to the people. The people were saying, can God spread a table in the wilderness? We have reason to doubt. Sure, he struck the rock and made water flow, but can he also give us bread or even provide meat for his people? The evidence that refutes their claim, their grievance against the Lord, was these facts, that he commanded the skies above, opened up the doors of heaven, and rained manna down for them to eat. <coughs> Described as manna, <coughs> the grain of heaven, and the bread of angels. Last night in family devotions, I asked the kids, like, what do you think is the healthiest bread that was ever made? And uh, I think it's manna. Why? Because uh, the nutritional quality could never be surpassed, I think, because it was made in heaven, the bread of angels. This was a meal prepared in glory and delivered to them. We get pizza delivered to our house. It's made on a different location. It arrives at our door. We open the box and that aroma... And it's neat because we didn't have to make it. The people of God were receiving a mail-order food from glory itself, from the realms of heaven. It was sweet to the taste. It was nourishing to the body, perfectly nutritious, and sustained them every day 
that God had planned for them on this journey, and yet they despised it. They despised it. They said, we would rather have more diversity in our menu. We sure could use some quail right now. You want quail? I'll give you quail. The quail came and just about drowned them in a sea of dead birds and feathers. He rained down on them manna to eat and gave them grain of heaven. This was the contravening testimony. If you want to follow along with the historical record with more detail, you could check later Exodus 16, 31 through 36, where manna comes from heaven and supplies the people in the wilderness. So because this was the truth, God was providing for his people, it only increased the responsibility and the culpability of his people who said it wasn't enough. And so the following happened. Verse 26, he caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he let out the south wind. And this is that Numbers 11 reference. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp, all around their dwellings. They ate and they were filled, and he gave them what they craved. I wrote down the phrase, a, a principle to extract, I believe, from these three verses or four. Indulgence as judgment. Indulgence as judgment. A Numbers 11.31, Exodus 14.21, there's another similar parallel. When God was preparing the judgment for the Egyptians, which is also the salvation of His people, He commanded the east wind. And the east wind, as the servant of the Lord, blew all night long and created a path on dry ground through the, through the Red Sea. Well, in this instance, God is commanding the east wind again to serve His purposes. And the east wind prepares judgment once again, for this time for the people of God. And it blows this whole flock, the migratory patterns of the birds, maybe all collected by His winds and funneled them into this couple mile zone and landed them all on their heads. God caused the east winds to blow from the heavens. Perhaps a reference recalling that judgment on the enemies of the Lord because His people now are acting like His enemies. By His power, He led out the south wind. He changed the weather patterns to allow these birds to fall on them so that the people would indulge their lusts. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sands of the seas. And then you know the rest of the story from what we said before. They ate and themselves to the grave, to the judgment that they deserved for indulging themselves in their many sins, including gluttony and unbelief. And so in this circumstance, we're reminded of verses like Romans 1.24, where we find God giving them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. And here's the point. The occasion of temporal indulgence is not to be taken as confirmation of the utility or virtue of social values. That might be a kind of an academic way of putting it. Let me try to rephrase it. Just because you're rich doesn't mean things are working right now. Just because you're partaking in all these apparent blessings does not mean your life is on the right track. It doesn't mean you're right with God. In our nation right now, historically speaking, we are perhaps per capita the most affluent society that has ever graced the planet. Is that a good thing? It depends. Where are the hearts of God's people? Is God bringing indulgence as judgment on America? Is He fattening us like cattle for the slaughter? I would say the majority of the evidence actually weighs in that favor. And we should have the discernment to see that just because 
we are rolling in money or we can basically purchase any modern convenience we want to and we all have like super technological iPhones in our pocket and the like. Just because of that, that is no reason to consider our state as a good one. All of these things might be just blinding, quote-unquote, blessings of self-indulgence that do not let us see the Lord and His priority and the true things that are valuable. What does Paul cry? Don't give me so much that I forget you. Don't give me so little that I resent you. Give me just enough to know that I'm taken care of and to fulfill your will for me. This is a better prayer than, Dear Lord, give me all the meat I could ever dream to eat. Give me more money than I know what to do with. I promise I'll spend it in good ways or whatever. Well, such may not be the case. If you're praying according to your cravings and not according to the glory of the Lord, then be careful what you wish for. He might just give you what you want. And in the wake of this judgment by indulgence, the people realized very quickly that what they were doing was not good at all. And although their faces were plastered with gluttonous smiles for a few hours, those same faces were cold with death as God created gray or God created a graveyard in judgment for them seeking after self. The judgment of permitted indulgence. Belshazzar is feasting, getting drunk, using the instruments of God's temple to bring cheap liquor to his lips and to intoxicate all of his party-going friends. And no doubt in uh, not only desecrating the holy things of God, but also entertaining all kinds of evil. And God allows that party to go on for a little while, but then it's reckoning time. It's crashed by a hand that writes on the wall and soon after by an enemy army who overtook this great nation in an hour. This is the kind of reckoning in history that God reserves the right to deploy at a moment's notice. When He does, may we be living humble lives of repentance and service to Him. Final point this morning. In this reckoning in history, there, was a, there were generational consequences. The last two verses, 30 and 31. Before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and He kindled the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. Who was hardest hit by this judgment? The uh, words, if you go to the original language, slew or struck down. And when it says young men, the connotation there. The language includes this idea of the chosen or choice young men. That is to say, the best, the brightest, most capable, with the most vigorous vitality, the hope for the future, the next generation was offered up as a sacrifice on the altar of this culture's self-indulgence. The consequences of failing to serve the Lord and to teach the next generation the works of God was the destruction of their children. Do you remember what the instructions were? Verse 6. Verse 5, he established, backing up a little, a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. That's what the people should have been doing. Instead of begging for coil, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, they should have been sitting around in circles with the classes of children 
paying close attention to the law of God. What does thou shalt not murder look like in this situation? What is covetousness and how might I, uh, how might I walk in a way that doesn't wish I had my neighbor's possessions and so on? This is what they should have been doing. Verse 6, then, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. You see, the promise here is not just that the next generation will learn the works of the Lord, but the implicit promise is that there will be a next generation. There will be another generation after them. The continuity of this people, the vitality, the generational future hinged upon faithfulness to teach, to proclaim, to emphasize, to insist upon the law of God with the next generation. And now we see the consequences of avoiding such a thing. If you do not love the law of God, but instead are lawless and seek only your own cravings, what will happen to the choicest, strongest, brightest among you? The anger of the Lord rose against them, and He killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. You see, the consequences are serious. The best and the brightest were lost. They were sacrificed. The most capable of the future generation was slain on the altar of this people's selfish whims. Now listen carefully as we bring this message to a close. There proved to be no hope in the sons of Israel under these conditions. No hope in the sons of Israel. They were killed in this reckoning. Their slaughter was deserved. However, towards the end of Psalm 78, and as Scripture progresses, we find that salvation would await a future sinless son of Judah. Salvation awaited them in the future through a future sinless son of Judah whose undeserved death would pay for their sins by substitute. There is a gospel contrast here. The people in their sin, the hope of the next generation, vested in their sons, vanished in a moment of judgment and reckoning. However, there would arise another son from Judah. He would choose from the tribe of Judah, from Mount Zion, which he loves, he would choose David, his servant, we see in verse 70 of this psalm, and take him from the sheep folds. The Lord would preserve his righteousness, his plan of salvation through the lineage of Christ. He would covenant and promise to, the, uh, to David that he would always have a son who would inhabit the throne of his people. And this promise was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus himself said as much, tying these pictures in the wilderness wanderings to himself, when he said in John 6, 25, they're asking him questions, Rabbi, could you explain? Thus and so, verse 26, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to, to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. You notice how Jesus is questioning their motivations? He's saying, you're following me because of your cravings. You don't understand who I truly am. You care about the God of the belly. And in this frame of mind and soul, you will end up in a grave of lust. He says, verse 27, Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on Him God the Father has set His seal. Then He said to them, 
Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Verse 32, Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Instead of praying for coil to fall from the sky or money tree to rain dollar bills on our heads, those who truly seek righteousness and the kingdom of God recognize that Jesus Christ is the true bread of God in His condescension, in His incarnation, come down from heaven to give life to the world. And these pictures of manna, that was the same day after day, sustaining the people in their wilderness, was anticipating the bread of life, Christ Himself, who would come down from heaven and sustain His people. The faithless could not see it, but the faithful put their hope in a God who proved Himself by works and wonders all through history, knowing that He would one day bring salvation for their very souls. And so He did. And so we remember His work this morning. Let us close in prayer thanking Him. Oh Lord, we thank You that in the fullness and perfection of time, You sent Your Son the bread of life to sustain Your people in the wilderness wanderings of their sin. Lord, let us not despise the manna that is Christ, bread from heaven, sent to us for the satisfaction of our souls. Every aspect of salvation fulfilled in His work on Calvary. Every hope and joy of eternal life and reconciliation with the Father invested in Him. Every reason to be encouraged that God who has worked in history even becoming a man walking among us and dying the sacrificial death on our behalf will work in our future and the future of all of the elect calling us home to that glorious reunion one day. Lord, let us live in faith, trusting your only way of salvation, and let us repent of any doubts that might be based on our own selfish cravings and all that we might glorify you even in the desert of our wanderings in this meantime, bringing honor to your name and living in appreciation of the truth that you have so lavishly bestowed upon us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.